Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I would like to begin today's program by sending a big well done to the people of Ireland who voted in favor of same-sex marriage last week. As you no doubt already know, uh, Ireland is the first nation on earth to submit this question directly to its citizens, a tactic that I am told is called democracy. Now, here in the States, however, uh, democracy is frowned upon, and so this nation uh, has submitted that question to uh, nine really old people who are sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. And need I mention the fact that six of those nine are Roman Catholics? (laughs) Yet there may even be hope here in the States, considering the fact that prominent members of the Catholic clergy in Ireland have called for their church to take a reality check. So, it is with great pride that I salute the citizens of Ireland for shedding off their infestation of priests uh, long enough to cast out that Christian homophobia. And uh, if you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you also know that I hold dual citizenship with uh, the U.S. and Ireland. That's right, my passport has that wonderful little harp on it. And as for welcoming gay rights, my family uh, actually has a stake in that as well. Uh, in June of 1993, I took my two youngest children to Ireland for a holiday, and we postponed the beginning of our touring for one day while my youngest son marched in that year's gay pride parade in Dublin. At the time, we never realized that it would take over 20 more years before the laws caught up with the minds of its citizens, but let's hand it to the Irish for being the very first to actually ask their citizens how they felt about it. And, uh, by the way, my youngest son is now married to a wonderful man, having been married in one of the U.S. jurisdictions that allow it, which is how it's going to be now for everyone in the Republic of Ireland as well. Bravo, Ireland, bravo. So, uh, now let's get on with today's program, which is the talk that my friend Daniel Pinchbeck gave at last year's Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man. Over the uh, past few months, Daniel's name has uh, come up in these podcasts several times, and so I can't remember how much about him I said recently. But for the uh, newcomers to the salon today, I'll give you a few of the headlines. First of all, as you will soon hear, Daniel is an author, lecturer, and one of the founders of Reality Sandwich, among many other pursuits. But my first contact with Daniel goes back to the 1999 Theo Botany Conference that was held in Palenque, Mexico that January. After that, uh, the next time we met was at the 2002 Burning Man Festival, when early one morning, after I'd just gotten up and was in center camp getting a cup of coffee, I bumped into Daniel, who, uh, (laughs) he was just coming home from a night on the then little town of Black Rock City. I think that there were only about uh, 25,000 people there that year. The following year, though, is uh, when I launched the Planque Norte Lectures, and Daniel was the second person who signed up to give a talk. Eric Davis was the first, by the way. And uh, since then, Daniel has given a Planque Norte lecture at every one of our events. And Bruce Damer is the only other person to do us that honor so far. So I want to make a point here and give Daniel a great big thank you for his wonderful support over the years. He is most definitely an integral part of the Burning Man experience for me and for many others. So now let's join Daniel Pinchbeck late on the Friday afternoon on the day before the 2014 burn. Um, next, we have Daniel Pinchbeck. Uh, Daniel is the best-selling author of a couple great books, uh, Breaking Open the Head and also 2012 Return of Quetzalcoatl. Um, he was also the co-founder of Evolver and Reality Sandwich, uh, editor-in-chief. He's the host of a show called Mindshift, and his latest project um, he has co-founded and is the director for the Center of Planetary Culture. So we're super excited to have Daniel here with us. Um, he's been here at Palenque Norte every single year since 2003, so uh, over a decade now. So please welcome Daniel. Uh, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to be here. Um, like many of you, I'm a little bit tired, 
Um, so I'm going to do my best to be cogent and coherent. Uh, but I'll also maybe invite some more audience participation uh, at certain points, um, maybe to, uh, yeah, to, to move some thoughts along. Um, I was going to start, I mean, um, what I wanted to talk about today was more on the level of kind of mystical, metaphysical ideas and speculations. Uh, a lot of them spurred by some experiences with uh, bufotonin, uh, the 5-MeO the uh, dimethyltryptamine. Uh, how many people here have, have had an intense experience of 5-MeO DMT, just out of curiosity? Um, cool. How many of those people found it uh, sort of overwhelming? Uh, yeah, so I, I've, I've done it a number of times. Um, most recently in, uh, well, New York, maybe a couple of years ago, and then in Mexico City. Um, and uh, the experience in Mexico City was with, was with a shaman who's been working with the toads in the Sonoran Desert. I have, most of you probably know that 5-MeO-DMT um, uh, is secreted by the, the glands of the bufo toad, um, which is a pretty, you know, kind of... Uh, gnarly-looking beast uh, that you find in swamps and deserts. Uh, and uh, apparently it can be found, images of the toad can be found in sacred art, uh, you know, from in a lot of indigenous, you know, Mexican cultures and so on. Uh, and, um, you know, the experience of smoking it is, um, essentially if you go past a certain threshold, it's kind of a total uh, immersion or, or surrendering, a kind of ego, total ego death experience where you uh, find yourself in a kind of... Uh, blissful kind of absolute dimension uh, that, you know, visually could be correlated maybe to kind of Islamic patterns going off in all directions forever, kind of white crystalline, uh, but but even that doesn't really do it justice. Um, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's essentially an experience that seems to be very similar to what, uh, you know, Eastern philosophy like Buddhism talks about as uh, nirvana or, or, or the void. Uh, my friend James Orak wrote a book called Tryptamine Palace. Have people checked that out at all? Um, he's actually speaking, no, I guess he spoke last night actually at Fomarash. Uh, so he wrote a whole book about 5-MeO-DMT and his experiences with it. Uh, and his kind of perspective on it, which is something that I derived at kind of independently, uh, is that um, it's almost as if, you know, NN-DMT, uh, which is the more commonly known one uh, that smoke that Terrence McKenna uh, wrote about at such... At such um, you know, with such great wit and, and verve. Um, and NDMT gives you a sense of the, these hyper-dimensional other realities that when you go past a certain threshold seem, you know, in a sense more fully realized than this one uh, to the point where, where it's quite shocking to kind of come back into this reality. 5-MeO-DMT, um, as I said, is this kind of immersion in, in, in the white, submersion in the white light of, of the void or of the absolute. So, so... James, looking at you know, looking at these two experiences, suggested that maybe they represent kind of like um, you know the, the the manifest and the unmanifest aspects of, of divinity or, or or God. I'm actually going to te uh, speak pretty freely about spirituality and mysticism. I know Planck and Norte tends to, to sort of tilt a little bit towards the scientific and the rational. Um, you know, you you could of course look at all these experiences simply as you know neurological cognitive experiences. Um, my, my own, you know, kind of journey, which I described in the books, uh, involves so many uh, kind of psychic and, and transpersonal and uh, paranormal, even occult experiences that I ended up becoming more persuaded by kind of the occult or shamanic worldview, uh, which suggests that, um, you know, kind of underlying the physical universe, there's uh, maybe, uh, you know, consciousness, maybe a single consciousness, as uh, Vedanta talks about. And maybe even underlying that single consciousness is this plane of the uh, unmanifest, uh, where uh, you know, where, where from where everything uh, emerges and, and to which everything kind of um, falls back. Uh, so my experience of smoking the, uh, the five meo in Mexico City was, on the one hand, this total blissful immersion, surrendering. Uh, into this state where there's no subject or object. There's just uh, kind of this, this, this uh, absolute serenity. Uh, and coming out of it, at first there was a sense of tremendous kind of uh, power and opportunity, and then, and then the, the ego mind kicked back in, and uh, I, I, I began to feel a lot of anxiety and, 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 and fear around it. 
And uh, I've heard that um, you know many people have had similar experiences, and some people actually experience kind of you know psychological breakdowns or mental breakdowns after 5-MeO-DMT. So it's definitely a substance to be used with caution. It's so, it's so radical and 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 so quick uh, and, and immersion you know into into this other reality. Um, and um, yeah, I think that uh, in a way the the the, the ego mind uh, finds it very difficult to 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 kind of uh, relinquish, become aware that there's this other domain, this kind of this kind of domain of the uh, the absolute. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So anyway, so so that experience sort of led me to continue a lot of ideas and, and thoughts that um, I've been exploring in, in the book 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Uh, just to give you maybe a little background about my work, uh, he mentioned the books. Uh, the first book, Breaking Open the Head, was on psychedelic shamanism, and I visited uh, you know, different tribal groups like the Mazatec Indians in Mexico and um, the uh, Sequoia tribe in, in uh, Ecuador to work with ayahuasca, and I went through a Bwiti initiation uh, with the Boga in Africa. And I kind of approached the whole subject both from my personal story and then also from kind of cultural, anthropological, philosophical lenses, uh, really trying to figure out, you know, why these types of experiences were so crucial for all these indigenous cultures around the world and so suppressed and, and repressed and denied by, you know, mainstream uh, modern culture. So, and, and through the process of writing that book, as I kind of just mentioned, I shifted from a scientific materialist uh, worldview to a more expanded worldview that encompassed the works of people like Carl Jung, uh, a sense of uh, there being kind of these domains of uh, the supernatural or the occult or a collective psyche and so on. Uh, and uh, the second book, so one of the, you know, kind of the shock of that first book was recognizing that, um, you know, this modern rational worldview uh, had left so much out uh, that it really seems like we were almost dealing with just like uh, a very, you know, a portion, of, a portion of reality that was much less than, than what should be available to us to, to think about and to know. And um, that a lot of these indigenous cultures had really been exploring this, uh, you know, in such depth, and we'd rejected their knowledge or trivialized their 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 ways of uh, of, of knowing and being. So I began to wonder if these indigenous cultures had, you know, some some deeper information or deeper knowledge that came from the work they were doing with with the, with, with you know these uh, shamanic practices and so on. And so that led me to explore the, the, the Hopi prophecies, the Mayan calendar, which was the basis of 2012. And in that book, I never suggested that anything in particular was going to happen on the date, December 21st, 2012, or even around that time, but more that we were in this uh, process of a uh, metamorphosis of human consciousness and, and society and civilization. Uh, and from my perspective, we can see that that process is ongoing and accelerating, uh, we can't necessarily see from where we are now exactly where it leads. Um, there's all sorts of crazy I I ideas or possibilities. Uh, there are there are people who are focused on the technological aspect, who uh, anticipate something they call the singularity, uh, the sense that technology is uh, accelerating, enhancing our capacities, and, and eventually humans are going to kind of uh, merge merge with machines and and create kind of a silicon immortality, or create a form of intelligence, an artificial intelligence that's so much greater than ours it kind of just uh, supersedes us. Um, I'm not. I'm, I, I, I question that that uh, perspective, uh, which we can get into a little bit. Um, but it's an interesting one that's out there. I mean, from from where we are now, I mean, and what I charted in the, in the 2012 book, uh, you know, I think there are a few aspects of what's happening on, on planet Earth that really suggest that we're in some type of crucible of metamorphosis. Uh, you know, perhaps a process on the level of, of, of a, you know, the planetary level, you know, similar to what happens when, you know, a caterpillar goes into a chrysalis and, and becomes a butterfly, a kind of real transmutation. And, uh, you know, the, the signs for that, from my perspective, include the uh, acceleration of technology, uh, particularly the uh, creation of the uh, infrastructure for global communications, the, the Internet and so on, which have now linked humanity into a global brain so that potentially signals new ideas ideas, new, new, new techniques, new technologies can, you know, go, go across the entire field of the species mind instantaneously. 
Uh, and then also one thing that I take seriously is kind of the globalization of uh, knowledge around esoteric and mystical traditions, uh, as well as kind of the, the melding of science and mysticism that we see happening in terms of all sorts of studies on you know, Tibetan monks and meditation or all the studies on uh, psychedelics in the brain that are now being permitted after so many years um, through organizations like Hefter and MAPS and so on. Uh, but then the other aspect of it is, of course, the ecological crisis, which um, at the moment definitely looks like something that, that's on the edge of being out of control. Um, you know, how many people know what the predictions are for temperature Celsius rise within this century? What do you think? Well, it's four to, they're saying four to six Celsius is what the IPCC report of uh, the UN scientist says, which is, yeah, 10 and a half uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, but the problem is that many people say that that's a conservative estimate uh, because um, they're discovering more and more feedback loops in the climate system. And they've also learned that from past epochs of climate change, that when climate change accelerates, uh, you can have a, a quite large uh, increase in temperature in a very short period of time, in 10 or 15 years. Um, and so they've discovered, for instance, now we're seeing, you know, droughts in California, uh, wildfires in, in forests, uh, the loss of the Arctic uh, ice sheets uh, leading to, you know, less of a reflection and more of an absorption of the sun's rays. You know, the Arctic is warming three times faster than the rest, the rest of the Earth. And they're basically discovering that all the modelings that they did even, you know, 15, 20 years ago are, are you know, less intensive than the process that's actually taking place. Uh, which also includes, you know, areas like ocean acidification. Uh, I know people, a few people will always leave the room when you start talking about this stuff because it's just something that nobody really wants to concentrate on. However, I do think that we have to concentrate on, and, and actually the, the, the main work project that I'm doing right now uh, with uh, my wife, Yana, and Ashley, uh, our, our director of communications, is a project on creating a, a, our own kind of wiki on a transition, what we're calling the regenerative society wiki. What would be the kind of action plan for a rapid transition to um, kind of a regener regenerative social design that would shift in a very short period of time to, uh, you know, renewable energies, to... Um, kind of, uh, you know, maybe relocalized communities, decentralized systems of control, um, and uh, everything else that we would need to sort of make a more holistic uh, framework. Uh, okay, so, so, you know, so one, 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 of course, one possibility or prospect is that this is, you know, simply, you know, a physical and material project, uh, you know, the process that's happening. Uh, and, you know, obviously from some, some perspectives it could be seen as maybe accidental, uh, you know, if all... This, everything that's happening is accidental, or the other idea is more from the Gaian uh, hypothesis that, that that maybe it's actually part of the the, the evolution of, of the Earth itself, uh, and 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 maybe also the evolution of consciousness uh, as an aspect of uh, Earth's evolution. Uh, and and so so for instance, one thing that I take seriously, as I described from my work in Breaking Open the Head in 2012, is the validity of uh, psychic uh, phenomena. Uh, how many people here believe that there's validity to psychic phenomena, just out of curiosity? And how many people here don't? Okay, so we've got more fours than against, but I guess that's what we would find here. Um, so, um, yeah, so for instance, if, if uh, psychic phenomena exists, it's a potential form of energy that could be accessed for purposes of transformation or evolution. Uh, and if you look at the uh, practices of tribal societies around the world, uh, you know, the, the, that was, you know, or traditional civilizations, you know, that seems to have been a lot of their focus. Uh, you know, a good example, for instance, being the Hopi who did, uh, who, who lo live in a, in a subsistence uh, level, you know, area uh, of de high desert where uh, they have to have a certain level of crops grow every year. They can't survive. And so for them, the kachina dances, the rain dances, are actually kind of necessary to bring enough rain to support the crops. Uh, you know, I, I've read the works of anthropologists, even like Cambridge-trained kind of empiricists. I think one guy, the guy was Peter Whiteley. who spent years with them, and he admitted that um, over time he found that uh, there were things about the Hopi that, you know, as an empiricist, he couldn't, he couldn't understand or accept. Uh, one is that they often seemed to be kind of telepathic and could, you know, figure out what he was going to talk to them about or ask them before he asked the question. Then the other is that sometimes these rain dances would, would, would work, that he would go to a kachina dance, it would be 
a clear blue sky, 120 degrees, blazing hot sun, and the uh, Hopi uh, would dance for 20 minutes or half an hour, and clouds would gather and rain would fall. And he said this didn't happen all of the time, of course, but it happened often enough so that it seemed to him to be something more than coincidence. So I, I find this very, very interesting as, as we're approaching kind of um, this ecological tipping point uh, and we're going to be you know, maybe pushed to our limits to find outside-of-the-box ideas or solutions. Uh, maybe you know, harnessing psychic energy is something that uh, humanity could learn to do to uh, forestall or, or kind of uh, avert uh, various forms of catastrophe. Uh, through you know through using using our global communications technologies, creating kind of um, global ceremonies, global workings, global focusing events uh, to to cool the planet, to preserve and protect threatened species, and so on. Now, I wouldn't say that replaces everything that needs to happen on a material and physical and technical level. It would just be another aspect of this of this transition. And I, and I think part of the transition is going from you know in many areas kind of dualistic either or thinking to more like a, a non-dualistic uh, a framework, a both-and uh, kind of framework. Uh, and so one of, one of the main thinkers... Are you guys following this? Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, one of the main thinkers that I explored in uh, the 2012 book, who I discovered and was really in awe of, of, his, of this masterpiece he wrote, was this Austrian philosopher, Gene Gebser, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Ever-Present Origin, uh, and as, as a typical kind of German, Austrian, Germanic kind of thinker, uh, you know, he's very structural, you know, and so he likes the word structure. And he, he looks at the evolution of consciousness in terms of these um, different levels or structures, each one being a different way of conceiving or realizing time and space. And in each one, they're actually being different capacities and potentialities that, that, that humans possess. Um, so he, you know, the book is called The Ever-Present Origin, right? So uh, the a- aboriginal cultures, aboriginal means of the origin, you know, for, for the first level of consciousness, which in the book he calls archaic, but we could call it aboriginal, uh, is a consciousness that, um, you know, is aware that every, every moment is uh, the origin, you know, that, that, that you're not really going anywhere, you know, that, that uh, there's no progress, there's no, there's no cycle, there's no return, there's just origin. Uh, and, and so for the aboriginals, every, every ritual act that they do is just meant to help preserve creation and it, 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 its, uh, you know, perfection, its, its, its per- perfect state. Uh, then, you know, there's a number of these levels, but the sort of the next big one is the, is the mythical level, uh, which is civilizations like the Hindu or ancient Greece or ancient Egypt or the ancient Maya, kind of all of the uh, traditional civilizations which perceive time in terms of these huge cycles. Uh, so it could be the procession of the equinoxes for Egypt or, uh, you know, the Mayan uh, long count calendar, these 5,125-year cycles for the Maya or the uh, Yuga cycle of, of the Hindus, you know, this now being the, uh, you know, the Iron Age of the Yuga, which means at some point there's like a, a transition back to uh, Golden Age. You know. Uh, and so then there was, you know, after the, the, the sort of mythical, mythological structure of consciousness, which perceived everything in terms of cycles, uh, there was the development of what Gebser talks about as the mental rational structure level of consciousness, uh, which perceived space, which kind of opened up perspective and perceived space and time in a new way, in, in, in a spatialized way, in a linear way. You know, so we conceive of, of progress, we conceive of, of history, we conceive, we conceive of time as being something that's similar to space or, or something similar to matter. So the way we think about time or talk about time is wasting time, spending time, running out of time. So we're always envisioning time as a kind of quantity which we can't quite get our hands around, which is always kind of running away from us or, or running out from under us. Um, so, so, so Gebser th- believes that mental, rational, you know, consciousness is uh, kind of marked by tremendous time anxiety, you know, uh, and, and this pressure, you know, this clock time, you know, and so on. And, and that ultimately the, the mental rational structure will be superseded by another structure of consciousness, which he calls the integral or the aperspectival structure of consciousness, which is marked by space timelessness, uh, kind of a, a return at a higher octave to that original uh, awareness of, uh, of, of uh, the continuous presence of uh, origin. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so... so um, 
I found that very, very, very interesting and intriguing and, 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 and helped me begin to make sense of the, the sort of prophetic uh, thought structure of cultures like the Maya and the Hopi uh, who talk about uh, you know, th- this being like the fourth world. The Hopi talk about this is the fourth world. The Aztecs of the Maya talk about the age of the fifth sun. Uh, this idea that there are the, 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 these uh, yeah, kind of psychical transformations of humanity, um, which I also then linked to uh, the work of Rudolf Steiner, uh, who was a visionary philosopher of the 19th and 20th century. Have people read Steiner at all or know anything about him? Uh, he created the uh, Waldorf schools, uh, biodynamic agriculture. I mean, one of the interesting things about him is that he was an extraordinary visionary who was able to apply uh, these kind of astral visions and ideas that he had in really, in really practical ways. So, so Waldorf is one of the world's most successful independent educational movements. Uh, biodynamic agriculture is an important forerunner for organic agriculture and so on. Um, and so Steiner was somebody who, you know, according to him, uh, just always had kind of visionary access to what he talked about as the astral plane or the Akashic record. And, you know, essentially, you know, one might think similar to the types of visionary experiences one has on ayahuasca or high doses of LSD or or mushrooms, where you're able to see into all of these different uh, dimensions or realities. So for for Steiner, this was just a, a kind of kind of dispensation that he had for whatever reason since early childhood, and uh, but he began to realize that the people around him didn't didn't have this ability. And when he tried to talk about his visions, they would they would uh, ridicule him or be kind of afraid of him. So he basically shut up about it, and he waited until he'd had a doctorate in philosophy and and had been uh, you know doing a whole bunch of work on Goethe's science papers to begin to express his own his own worldview, his own vision, and he, he ended up writing like so many books so many, so many thousands of lectures and so many topics and and you know much of it will seem quite eccentric or even kind of maybe ludicrous uh, aspects of it might seem ludicrous it, it was definitely at the time also of the theosophists Madame Blavatsky and so on and there was a kind of integration uh, with theosophy and anthroposophy and some of the other movements of that time of an, an effort to integrate kind of eastern metaphysics and the western uh, occult tradition uh, which was basically part of what Steiner was doing. But among the very, I think, very interesting things that Steiner talked about, even at the dawn of the 20th century, he said that um, his mission, the reason that he had reincarnated on the earth at, at that point in time, was actually to bring the knowledge of reincarnation back to the West. And he said that not only did... Um, kind of uh, humans incarnate again and again, but the earth itself uh, incarnated uh, in different forms. And he said that this was currently the uh, fourth incarnation uh, of the earth, and we were on the cusp or the transition to what he talked about as the fifth incarnation of the earth. Uh, I mean, one thing that I really tried to do in my, in my work was to look at all these different kind of um, articulations you know, or expressions of, of, of what seems to be happening, uh, recognizing that you know, the map is not the territory and, and, and none of them are perfect, but, but all of them are tools for us to kind of uh, think and, and imagine and then hopefully um, maybe co-create you know, what, 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 what emerges and, and what develops. So, so in terms of Steiner's concept of these um, incarnations of the earth, they really represent different states or different levels of consciousness, uh, very much like Gebser was, was talking about. So, and, and, and so, for, for instance, he talked about how in uh, the, 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 first, the first Earth, there was, we, humans only possessed the physical body or some rudiment of it. Then we gained the etheric body in the second world, then the, the astral body. And then finally, in the fourth world, which we're in presently, we gained the ego or the I. We gained our, our sense of uh, separate uh, individual identity, our sense of uh, yeah, our, our unique self, our sense of free will. And, he's, and, and Steiner believed that the, um, you know, the, the, the next incarnation of the earth that we were moving towards uh, involved the creation of a new uh, you know, subtle body, in a sense, or different, some, some kind, of, kind, of, kind of body or form. So, um, yeah, you could look at um, the, the uh, as I said, the physical body, which is you know, what we, we, the material body, the, the etheric body, which is kind of the life body, the astral body, which is the dream body, uh, for Steiner, you know, when we go to sleep at night, uh, the the I or the ego and the astral body uh, unite, and they take off on uh, journeys into the the astral realms, and then bring back uh, information uh, to 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 the, to the sleeping person. Uh, and and yes, yeah, so 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 you had the um, the astral body, and then finally the 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 I or the ego. 
So, but but the problem from Steiner's perspective was that in in, in our time. Uh, through the astral body, through all these other dimensions and other worlds, these tremendous cravings uh, and yearnings and desires pour into us. And, and, and when the eye is, is weakly developed, it's more than we can handle. You know, so it leads people to addictions, to patterns of self-destruction, to, to you know, a lot of the negative, to greed, you know, to all of this stuff. So Steiner said that the next incarnation of the earth, the fifth one, would, would, would mark the development of what he called the spirit self, which would be as the I or the ego grew stronger, it was able to transmute or transform the astral body and take, and take mastery over it. And as, and as the astral body was, was transmuted or transformed, it created something that Steiner talked about as the spirit self. Um, so once again, this idea that we were on the, on the cusp of this transition from um, you know, this mental rational worldview uh, this egoic, uh, individualistic world, uh, to something that maybe is more, um, um, more subtle, more, more, more psychic. I mean, and, and then for me, I mean, I correlate this with a lot of what we see happening in technology. Uh, you know, one thing that's super interesting to me is the trajectory that, that seems to suggest that the, the human imagination is, 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 is being liberated, uh, in, in rap, more and more rapid phases. Uh, you know, so, you know, a thousand or two thousand years ago, if you wanted to carve a, a sculpture out of stone, you'd have had to spend decades as an apprentice, you'd have had to find, found, a, find a block of marble, you know, you'd have had to really, really, um, do all this incredible work. Uh, you know, today, theoretically, you can do a sketch, find somebody to render it, find a 3D printer, and in an hour, you could have, uh, you know, a, a sculpture made. You know, similarly, we see that with all the media, with the ability to create a, you know, magazine on the web or a film or, or, or whatever it is, you know. So, so our, 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 it's like our imaginative capacities are being sped up. Uh, at the same time, science and technology are exploring kind of deeper and deeper levels or layers of the physical world. Uh, I have friends who are uh, MIT chemical engineers who do work with like nanotechnologies and so on, and they talk about how when they think about the trend of what's happening uh, in, in science and technology, they see it leading to what they call uh, ITM, which would be uh, instantaneous thought manifestation. Uh, you know, where, where, yeah, as soon as you had a thought, you'd be able to materialize or project it in, in physical form. And, and in that sense, I think we could look at the um, evolution of technology uh, as, a, as simply an aspect or projection of the evolution of consciousness itself. Uh, in that if we think about uh, what technology is, it's like we have an idea, we create a tool, uh, the tool then reflects us back at ourselves, we then iterate and we create another tool, that tool teaches us something new about ourselves, you know, and, and, we, and we can see this, you know, very clearly in how, you know, computers, you know, everything we've, we've discovered and learned through computers has also become like operative metaphors for, um, you know, for cognitive processes, for, for, for memory, for thought, you know, and so on. Um, yeah, so I think that, that, that's a, that's a, that's just like a, a very interesting prospect. So, so, um, you know, to go back to the larger kind of theme, I started talking about, uh, 5-MeO DMT and the sense of this kind of, uh, sub, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, now you're looking, I mean, I don't even know how I think about this or feel about it, but, you know, eventually we may be able to, you know, 3D print like new life forms, you know, I, I mean, uh, or, re-engineer extinct species to make them de-extinct, you know, I mean, you know, or then, you know, combine species, I mean, they're already doing that, you know, the backyard, you know, geneticists are, are making, genetic, genetic engineers are, are making glow-in-the-dark uh, trees and plants right now, I mean, and I'm not, I don't necessarily think any of that is what, what, good or bad, I don't even know what good or bad is in a sense, it, it's part of what's happening or, or emerging right now, I guess, and we have to, you know, look at it straight in the eye, I mean, I, I very much agree with uh, William Blake's idea that, um, you know, the imagination is not just a state, it's the human existence in itself, you know, the, 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 what, what we're experiencing, you know, in terms of, once again, Carl Jung's idea of the, the mythological unconscious, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's an archetypal process that in a way it's, it's, it's like a, a myth that's woven into uh, reality, you know. 
Um, and, and in that sense, yeah, I feel that we're on the cusp of liberating uh, the imagination to a tremendous degree. And that's very much what we see at Burning Man, right? That's, I think, what, what draws people here is we see this capacity that, that we now have to go from kind of just being trapped in the inertia of this, like, industrial capitalist mega machine that's all about money and materialism to somehow at the, at the, the edge of that uh, structure, you know, transmuting it, uh, making a metamorphosis. So it's about uh, joy, uh, individual expression, uh, uh, community expression, uh, creativity, a- 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 and the, the liberation of the imagination. Uh, so for me, that, 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 that's what is suggested as kind of a potential <coughs> teleology or, or destiny, you know, for, for us. Um, you know, and, and then beyond that, who knows? I mean, I mean, um, you know, there, there may be different levels. Once again, this idea that there are these levels or structures of consciousness, something that Gebser talks about, that, that Steiner talks about in his own way. Uh, another thinker who talks about it is Aurobindo. Uh, who talks about, uh, he wrote a book called The Life Divine, which I haven't read all of it. It's like a zillion pages, like 1,300 pages or something. But essentially he looks at uh, this idea that we're in this mental level of consciousness and then there's this Brahma or the Atman or the divinity or the absolute. And, and, and he, he develops a very um, compelling kind of metaphysical, philosophical argument that there are other stages in this process, like intermediary stages. He talks about something that he calls the, uh, the descent of the supermind uh, as the potential next stage of, of human evolution. Uh, I'm sorry if this is super heady. I hope you guys are enjoying it. All right, cool. <laughs> I just decided to go for it. This is actually more or less what I think about all the time, or a lot of the time. So I might as well just get it out of my head and like share it, and, and then we can, you know, you can you can bounce it around in your head for a while, and then you, you can get a headache and tell me what you think. Um, which one? Oh, Aurobindo. He was an Indian mystic uh, who um, had a he created a utopian community in India called Auroville with his uh, partner who was called the Mother. And he was like one of the major, he, he very much like, I would say Steiner and Aurobindo are like, you know, the, the, the Western and Indian, like greatest, like, you know, metaphysical thinkers of, of the 20th century. Yeah, so, so this idea that, um, you know, on the way back to, you know, unity or the absolute or, or nirvana, there are these different stages or, or dimensions. And uh, as, as chaotic and turbulent and kind of, um, in some ways, disastrous as our, as our system, you know, our civilization may seem at this moment, you know, we're actually in, in, the, in this shifting back. And once again, we, we feel that, I think, most intensely at a place like Burning Man, where we can see how much work so many people have done on themselves to, uh, you know, reach new levels of, of awareness, new, new levels of illumination, uh, and so on, you know? Um, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, the Vedantic thought, there are uh, different levels of uh, consciousness. There's a waking consciousness, there's dream, dream sleep consciousness, and then there's dreamless sleep. And for them, they believe that the dreamless sleep is actually the deepest level of consciousness. And once again, um, you know, we're usually not aware in dreamless sleep, but actually you apparently can become aware, um, you, beca- you can become conscious in, in dreamless uh, sleep consciousness. Uh, Tibetan lamas talk about it. If you read um, kind of uh, the Tibetan yoga of sleep and dream is one excellent book, which has a whole set of practices for lucid dreaming. And ultimately, if you follow the practices, if you develop your lucid dreaming practice, you're then ultimately able to then kind of be conscious or, or aware in this kind of space-timeless state of, of dreamless sleep. Um, you know, so, 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 uh, yeah, I guess also, I mean, you know, my other level of thinking and work right now is, as I said, looking at through the, the new um, organization we started, Center for Planetary Culture, considering the ecological crisis, the amount of social uh, and wealth injustice on the planet, and, um, you know, what would be a rapid transition strategy. But from my perspective, for that transition to be effective, to, to actually happen, there, there also needs to be kind of a new vision or a new myth or, or a new construct of where humanity is going. Because over the last several hundred years, I mean, we, went, we transitioned from, you know, kind of um, imperialism, you know, kind of missionary Christianity uh, to kind of just... Um, materialism, uh, kind, kind of get for yourself what you can, uh, you know, money as kind of the god of the system in a way, uh, a naive faith that technology can solve all the problems created by technologies. 
Um, so, you know, pot potentially from my perspective, a, a future orientation uh, for human society could be in two directions. It would be both simultaneously up and out and down and in. Uh, up and out would be reviving the idea that was very popular in the 60s that humanity actually could, uh, you know, take the living biosphere to other worlds, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and settle them. I mean, I very much like uh, Lynn Margolis, uh, who was uh, Carl Sagan's wife. Um, she wrote a book called Microcosmos. And she re realized, you know, in that book, she discussed how almost everything that humans are doing with technologies, we find present on the microcosmic level. You know, so viruses are able to transfer genes around the whole surface of the planet uh, super fast, almost as if they had their own kind of global communication system. Um, you know, in the same way, microorganisms are able to make an eye. Uh, you know, we now make satellite dishes to look out into space, you know. So in a way, we think we're doing technology, but it may be more that technology is just happening or emerging through us. We're kind of incubating technology on behalf of this uh, Gaian mind or, or Gaian intelligence. And if, if uh, according to the Gaian hypothesis, if the Earth is something like a giant living organism, uh, what is it that uh, you know organisms seek to do? They seek to uh, reproduce themselves, right? So in a sense, it could be that humans are being uh, the human species is being auditioned or apprenticed to be the kind of um, disseminators of, of the biosphere to take it from the Earth and bring it to, to other worlds. So that would be the kind of up and out aspect of, of where we might consider ourselves going as a species, whether in 50 years or 100 years or, or, or you know, 50,000 years, God knows. Uh, and the, the other direction would be down and in, um, you know, the, 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 into, the, into the qualitative exploration of uh, body-mind states and, and um, the development and enhancement of our various uh, potentially psychic uh, capacities. Um, this is an idea that um, was developed very much by Jose Arguelles, who's one of my favorite um, kind of thinkers. He, he talked about how we're on the cusp of shifting from material civilization to psychotechnic civilization, where we would use all the tools of technology to, you know, kind of um, develop all of our all of our uh, cognitive capacities, all of our psychic capacities. This type of idea is also developed very recently in a book by uh, Tom Roberts called uh, "The Psychedelic Future of the Mind." Uh, and, um, yeah, in that book, you know, Robert suggests that the singularity is, may not be so much a technological sing singularity as a kind of, um, kind of, uh, awakening of all of these, uh, you know, dormant capacities of, of the human mind. Uh, and, and he notes that we could really use our, our technical genius to, uh, accelerate and enhance our, our, our cognitive functioning. Uh, so, for instance, in that book, he talks about how, you know, there's all these documented cases of people getting struck by lightning and suddenly being developing a new skill, like being able to sight-read music or, you know, access a language or something. And so if that's a dormant faculty in the human brain that somehow, you know, is, is responded, you know, is, is you know, ha is... is the response, you know, is, is, a, is a construct that happens due to some electromagnetic stimulation of a certain structure of the brain. I mean, you could theoretically artificially induce it. Uh, you know, at the same time, you see um, kind of, um, yeah, like uh, this, the scientist Persinger in Canada developed what's called the God Helmet that was able to stimulate a part of the brain that reliably uh, produced a, a feeling of uh, divine awe or divine terror, the sense of an enormous presence uh, from outside. You know, so, so in this sense, we may be very much just at the beginning of uh, exploring, uh, you know, qualitative states, quali qualitative capacities of, of existence. And once again, I feel that Burning Man is a, is a template for that in that we, uh, you know, accept, uh, you know, on some levels, tremendous, you know, uncomfortableness in order to, you know, ha have a, a deeper uh, intensity of qualitative experience. Um, so I, I guess I could y yap on and on. I'm sort of maybe running out of time, but I could take a couple questions if you got one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Buck Buckminster Fuller has definitely been a huge inspiration for me. I mean, I made a documentary film, which I think is free to watch now on, on Vimeo, called 2012 Time for Change. And uh, Buckminster Fuller was uh, like the linchpin of the film. And, and essentially thinking about his you know, design, design science principles as really the template for how we would rethink 
you know, the, the designs we've now, you know, we're now using socially and technically and so on. I mean, Bucky uh, realized that um, hum- humans were designing. Have people read his books? Has people read Utopia uh, or Oblivion? Uh, definitely recommend that it's a short book or Operation Spaceship Earth. Um, you know that 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 essentially humans were designing, you know, to in ways that sought to dominate or control natural processes rather than learning from nature and and imitating uh, how it work how it functions. Uh, so in the film we looked at permaculture as a design science applied to agriculture. I mean, in terms of the excess CO2 production, just a worldwide global shift from industrialized monoculture agriculture to uh, you know. Perm- Permaculture and ecological agriculture would uh, reduce uh, CO2 by 30%, you know, according to a lot of, a lot of studies. And, um, so, yeah, so, and we looked at it even in terms of monetary systems, you know, um, and there again, like, uh, the, the implementation of Buckminster Fuller's ideas often involves kind of... Um, Looking back at tr- traditional cultures and tribal societies and how they, uh, you know, created kind of systems that were uh, highly resilient and uh, functional and non-destructive to, the, to, to their local ecosystems. So, for instance, the guy who just won the Buckminster Fuller Prize two years ago uh, developed a whole system for um, kind of... Um, Re- reversing desertification on grasslands that had been turning to deserts through uh, rotating cattle, uh, because he he discovered that the uh, nomads uh, uh, who were herding on the on the steppes, uh, the way that they, the cattle was rotated and their saliva and and feces and all that stuff uh, actually uh, you know kept kept the, the the soil moist and allowed for the grasslands to to to, to stay grassy. You know, so so he now has applied almost like a military military uh, precision uh, to what these nomadic herders were doing, kind of uh, just you know naturally through trial and error. So so a lot of the in design science, a lot of the cutting edge of the of the thought is the kind of bringing together of indigenous uh, wisdom and you know postmodern technologies and, and techniques. That's a great question. I don't even know if I have a total answer. I mean, there's something like when you go to visit, um, you know, Palenque. Or um, what's the big one outside of Mexico City, Teotihuacan? I mean, those, those, they seem like, uh, you know, hyper-advanced uh, kind of uh, artifacts. Uh, you, you sense that there was something very, very profound and kind of numinous going on there. That's kind of beyond um, our current level or, or capacity uh, uh, to understand. And once again, maybe you see Burning Man, uh, the structures here and the orientation of people here kind of pointing towards the reaccessing of that, um, that knowledge. You know, maybe it involved all sorts of, you know, psychotechnical practices, occult practices, um, you know, um, it definitely seems that when people go into psychedelic states, there's like an automatic uh, reaccessing of a lot of uh, information, almost an overwhelming amount of information. And these cultures were maybe had the, the time over thousands of years to uh, study it, uh, mediate it, uh, you know, uh, make use of it. Um, and maybe it's part of our destiny then to to d- redevelop in that direction, uh, while at the same time, you know. Having gone on our on our evolution of science and rational knowledge and technology is is would would be an aspect of of of, of uh, what we would now uh, apply you know to to that knowledge you know to make it maybe more full or more complete you know I mean it's amazing what the Maya knew and also what they didn't know you know they could observe these you know tremendous long long you know movements of the stars and the heavenly bodies and so on but as far as we know they didn't know that um, you know the Earth was uh, circling the sun you know. Uh, well, I mean, listen, it's, it's all, you know, theoretical. I mean, and any construct is just a construct. And, you know, we, we tend to get trapped in constructs. Like, uh, I really like uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce's idea that, uh, in a way, culture is our enemy because uh, culture always kind of, uh, it's like, it's like a, a crystallization or, or rigidific- rigidification of something that was once just, you know, um, a vision or an experience. And, so, and then people begin to believe in the rigidification. So I don't want to do that. I, I, I like all these different ways of articulating. And I'm not saying that any of them is the way or the right way. But by having a range of them and seeing how they correlate, then in the spaces kind of in between them, we get a more full sense or more comprehensive sense potentially of what's happening, you know? Yeah, he's he's wondering about uh, the experience of ego death, and what was the rest of it? Yeah. In, in psychedelics, how that affects different states of consciousness. What is the ego death experience? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, um, it's it, it's. 
I mean, I, I guess it was this 5MEO DMT experience was the most powerful one that I'd had. It's essentially, yeah, it's like um, a dis- disappearance of a subject-object distinction. You know, on, on the one hand, it's kind of like a merge, merging with everything, which is very much what they talk about enlightenment. But but on the other hand, it's like the disappearance of everything at the same time. So it's like a, 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 a paradoxical, you know, non-dual state. You know. Uh, and it's too much for our ego minds to hold on to at this point because um, you know we're 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 connected to this you know this is what we know you know various uh, various uh, ayahuasca and various flavors of DMT they unhint they pop the bubble of the ego and hence they unhinge you from the constraint of linear time and where you even experience the you know it's it, in the nuclear physics aspect of multiple paths which you could potentials which you could have traveled on or did travel on or may travel on so i think that's to be the that seems to me to be the key to those substances yeah i t- i agree with you 100% i mean um uh you know according to quantum physicists you know what we experience as space time in a sense already exists on a higher dimension as a block you know we're we're seeing it through our little periscope you know much as we might look down at a at a three dimensional sculpture and see ants uh you know moving around in it they would only see their little limited trajectory you know we're we're kind of having that same experience of the space time continuum but there is another you know a point from a higher dimension where the whole thing is comprehensible as as one you know and and it, and it may be that um you know when we talk about you know galactic level civilizations you know um aliens and so on it may be that um they are beings who've passed through that that threshold you know so that so to like some extent or other are able to access that higher dimensional um uh, reality you know yeah yeah. Uh, we got more questions over here. Or, uh, any women? I, 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 any women have a question? Or is it all men? Yeah. All right. Go ahead. I, I just want to ask you this question about technology because essentially I believe that we're going to move beyond the need to take an actual plant or chemical substance. So there's two ways I think personally that this is going. And one is that Eventually, with brain technology, we'll figure out how to determine what those psychedelic um, programs are pushing the buttons inside of our brains and our neurotransmitters so that we could put on headphones and eventually just turn the dial and be able to experience it or turn it off. But what are your thoughts on that? And then ultimate virtuality, not just goggles you put on, but actually like lucid dream when we really start getting real with virtual reality. What are your thoughts on where that's going? Well, once again, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, but it's certainly interesting. Um, you know, there's also this idea that, uh, you know, you know, serious Cambridge philosophers like this guy Nick Bostrom are now exploring this idea that uh, the physical universe is itself uh, could very well be a simulation, uh, and they're trying to figure out um, kind of a ways to look at the the boundary constraints, like. Uh, you know, at, at, at the edges, if it pixelates out, you know, that would, that would be a good sign that it's actually some form of simulation. So what would that mean? Is it a simulation within a simulation within a simulation? Is it like the Escher hand drawing the hand, drawing the hand, drawing the hand, drawing the hand? I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe once again, these things are so inherently paradoxical that, um, you know, it's, it's going to be beyond our current form of language, perhaps, to even uh, express them, you know. But, I mean, this idea of the universe being a kind of uh, simulation, you know, resonates very much with, you know, Hindu ideas of, you know, Maya or Leela, you know, and so on, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, 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 there's the potential, you know, I, I mean, it's from, from my perspective at this point, having looked at this stuff so deeply, it, it's, you know, the, the, I, I can't totally understand the, the ability of the, you know, the human mind individually and collectively to block out what's happening ecologically. You know, so you have people, for instance, who, you know, have these massive companies now like Facebook and Google who are still very young. They're in their 30s. You know, so if they look just at the science of what's happening on the planet, uh, you know, within 50 years, it's essentially an uninhabitable planet. You know, they can reach 1.2 billion people or more with an email 
or or a social technology tomorrow. You know, so so you know, imagine if they you know had a realization that that the the, the, the trip that they're on, the inertia of this post-capitalist uh, industrial mega machine, you know, w- w- was just hitting the skids. You know, they they could actually disseminate to you know a huge percentage of the world's population including almost everybody who's educated has wealth and resources and so on you know a whole set of ideas around you know how do you build a rooftop garden how do you form uh, local communities with a decentralized uh, power system you know how, how how do you you know what's the most efficient ways to go completely renewable uh, in terms of your energy supply and feed back that energy to the to the grid you know that they could be doing that next month you know they could be rolling out the google facebook you know climate climate crisis prevention network you know uh, and if they don't do it, I mean, those aren't going to be, you know, just because they're the first billion-person platforms, the likelihood that others will, will emerge, and, and especially, you know, as, as we're, you know, ha- hitting this critical uh, time of transition. You know, uh, yeah, so does that answer your question? Okay, cool. Uh, a wise proposition uh, to start formatting or quantizing the creative expression so that this artificial intelligence doesn't treat it as a threat. Because I could easily see how it could be threatening to something, a new emerging consciousness like that. Yeah, I mean, once again, it's not it's not an area of expertise. I mean, there are scientists who are you know significantly concerned about artificial intelligence. Um, um, you know, it's something that I would like to know more about. I guess. I mean, I think one of the problems we have right now is that um, you know our our our, our structures of governance. Are, were, were created in the 19th century, 18th century, right? Like, uh, you know, the nation-state government, the liberal democracy was created in the 18th century for a time when, thi- you know, technology and science were pretty slow and things moved at horse and buggy speeds. Uh, we don't really have um, kind of uh, ways to collectively uh, respond uh, intelligently to, to, the, to the, the level of, of uh, change and, and, and technological evolution that's happening so rapidly now. Uh, you know, so so in a way, like um, I think it would only be through you know social networks, social technologies that uh, you know the hu- you know, human population on a much larger scale could be given a voice in uh, the future of these technologies. You know how they should be implemented. Uh, you know what what they should be allowed to do, and so on. You know. What is the void? What's that? The void. What is what, that? What is the void? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like the unmanifest, I guess. It's like the, 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 the emptiness that underlies the manifestation, you know. Um, what do you think it is? The world talk about the void. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I mean, it's also suchness or tatagata, I guess, another way of looking at it. It's, um, I guess, it's this paradoxical non-dual state, you know, of, uh, you know, the, the full, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, what is philosophy talks about, you know, that samsara is actually nirvana, you know, and nirvana is this, um, the perfected experience that uh, you have through, uh, you know, I think a substance like 5-MeO-DMT, uh, at least a glimpse into it, you know. Maybe we should stop there. Is that good? All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was, was interesting. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And while I haven't seen the schedule that Chris Pezza is organizing for this year's Planque Norte Lectures, my guess is that uh, Daniel Pinchbeck is going to be on it once again. And uh, by the way, if you want to listen to Daniel's very first Planque Norte Lecture at the inaugural sessions that we held back in 2003, you'll find it as my podcast number four. Also, uh, you may want to go to our program notes blog, which uh, you know you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and uh, there you'll find links to all things Daniel, including Reality Sandwich, Evolver, the Movie Database, and now the Center for Planetary Culture. And uh, speaking of planetary culture, I would uh, like to refer you to my podcast number 143, Rethinking Society. This is a uh, trialogue between Terence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake that I published in June of 2008. And uh, I think you'll find some very interesting conversation there about the state of the world back in 1992 when that trialogue took place. 
Not surprisingly, uh, things haven't gotten significantly better since then. And uh, actually, it's too bad that we didn't follow Ralph Abraham's advice at the time, which was to turn over our churches to the rave community and hold all-night dances in them. And uh, <laughs> in that podcast for our fellow saloners who are sampling McKenna sound bites for their music, you'll be rewarded to hear him say that there will be no peace in this world until the last politician is strangled with the guts of the last priest. <laughs> it's a little gory, but a nice thought anyway, don't you think? <laughs> now, uh, in closing, I'd like to circle back to a question that has been floating around here in the salon for quite a while. And that is the origin of the phrase, find the others. Now, if you've been with us for a while, then you've heard Terrence McKenna claim that it was Timothy Leary who first came up with that phrase. But then we heard Dr. Leary deny it, claiming that uh, he never said it. Well, there is this bit of Timothy Leary's writing that's floating around the net these days. And while I can't attest to its accuracy, if we assume that it was actually written by Leary, then this may explain why the good doctor didn't remember coming up with that phrase, because, well, it was part of a much longer essay of his. And here's the pertinent part, and I quote Dr. Timothy Leary here. Admit it. You aren't like them. You're not even close. You may occasionally dress yourself up as one of them, watch the same mindless television shows as they do, maybe even eat the same fast food sometimes. But it seems that the more you try to fit in, the more you feel like an outsider, watching the, quote, normal people as they go about their automatic existences. For every time you say club passwords like, have a nice day and weather's awful today, eh? You yearn inside to say forbidden things like, tell me something that makes you cry, or what do you think deja vu is for? Face it, you even want to talk to the girl in the elevator. But what if that girl in the elevator, and the balding man who walks past your cubicle at work, are thinking the same thing? Who knows what you might learn from taking a chance on a conversation with a stranger? Everyone carries a piece of the puzzle. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. Trust your instincts. Do the unexpected. Find the others. End quote. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends. <laughs>